Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. This podcast, an interview with George Packer conducted in 2013, is being posted on July 4th, 2021, nearly six months to the day after the Trump insurrection. The forces that brought about the Capitol invasion haven't gone away. The refusal by the Republican Party to examine those forces and the role Donald Trump played in the coup attempt indicates we are not out of the woods. So how did we reach this point? How far back do we have to go to find the turning points in the history of America? In 2013, New Yorker staff writer George Packer's book, The Unwinding, An Inner History of the New America, closely examined the changes in American society and politics that led to the political turmoil of the Obama years and in a way predicted the outcomes we've seen since the book was published. The Unwinding went on to win the National Book Award for nonfiction. I interviewed George Packer about The Unwinding on June 4, 2013 in the KPFA studios. My guest is George Packer, whose latest book is titled the Unwinding, and Inner History of the New America. He's also the author of The Assassin's Gate. There are four nonfiction books, two novels, one play. And I guess you're a staff writer for The New Yorker as well? Yes, yeah, since 2003. The Unwinding concerns the last 40 years of America from various perspectives, a symphony of voices, as you call it. Can you talk about what prompted you to start the book and also its relationship to the USA Trilogy by John Dos Passos? The book is a, a generation-long saga about America. It's a portrait of the country over the last generation. I think something changed around the late 70s that created a new era, the one that we are still in. And to put it very simply the social contract began to come apart. And it's been coming apart ever since in more and more visible ways. Lots of institutions have stopped functioning very well from government to business to the media to schools. And this is a big story. And I wanted to find a way to tell it in an immediate and gripping way, not as a political book or a policy book or even a history in the sense of big events. Instead, I wanted to convey the feel of this period and what it's like to be an American living today and how this state of affairs we're in now came about. And to do that, I needed to tell stories and to find a structure to put them in. So the book moves through 35 years from 1978 to the present of American history through the lives of a handful of people who the reader hasn't heard of, and also sketches of the leading figures of the period from different walks of life. From politics, there's Newton Gingrich and there's Elizabeth Warren. From entertainment, there's Oprah, there's Jay-Z. From business, there's Sam Walton. There's Alice Waters from the town that we're in right now. So you see America from both the point of view of elites and the point of view of ordinary folks from powerful places like Washington, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and also forgotten places like Youngstown, Ohio, uh, and rural North Carolina. To put it all together, I needed a structure that could contain this disparate array of American voices and characters. And I turned to Dos Passos great trilogy, USA, from the 30s, because it provided me in fiction a model for this nonfiction. Three decades of American life at the beginning of the 20th century, following the stories of his characters who are caught up in the history of their times, which is also what happens to the characters in my book. 
and whose destinies are sort of cast into light by the stories of the leading figures from that period, from Henry Ford to Woodrow Wilson. So that became a model, although, of course, I had to depart from it because this is not a novel. This is all true. So Dos Passos is sort of the guiding literary spirit behind the book. He uses fictional lives of characters. You use real people. Uh, he uses newsreels. You have newsreels of each certain years. There's sort of news crawls <laughs> in, my, in my book, yeah. And he uses real biographies as well. And this is actually you know, a tradition. We also see it, of course, in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath to one degree or another. What made you select these five I don't want to call them people because the, they're four people and one city. Yeah. So let's start with the first. Okay, you have this idea, and I understand Dean Price was the first person that you put in. When you interviewed him, I guess it was for The New Yorker, was this beginning to uh, arise? I already knew I wanted to write a book about the era that led to the financial crisis and Obama's election. Those were the two events that gave me the idea for this book. Although it really goes back to the Iraq war and the failure of one institution after another to uh, rebuild and bring that country out of its ruins. So I had begun to think about American institutions failing before 2008. 2008 was an, a historic year for, for institutions collapsing. Dean Price crossed my path when I was doing a piece for The New Yorker about Obama's first year. And it focused on a congressman from Virginia named Tom Perriello, who was elected by a whisker in a very red district in southern Virginia. He's a Democrat. It was kind of an amazing uh, win for him. His office connected me to various people in that district who had alternative energy projects that he was trying to get grants from the stimulus bill for. And one of them was Dean Price, who actually is not a Virginian. He's a North Carolinian. He's from the tobacco and textile country of the Piedmont, which is sort of around Greensboro, Winston-Salem. 30 seconds on the phone with Dean Price, hearing him talk about his biodiesel truck stop, farm to pump, closed loop. And I said to him, stop talking. I don't want you to spend it here on the phone. I'm coming down to meet you. And I did. He played a very small part in that, in that New Yorker piece. But he stayed in my head because his voice was so original and compelling and deeply American. His country, the, the country of the Piedmont, had fallen on such hard times, massive unemployment, fallow farms, drug abuse, multiple generations on public assistance. It was falling into poverty. He wanted to raise it up, and his, his vision was it would happen through canola seeds and waste restaurant oil, these humble things that are found all around, which would produce biodiesel fuel, which would regenerate the economy. It was a real Johnny Appleseed kind of story, and he told it magnificently, and his whole life was has been a kind of quest. So over the next couple of years, I just kept going down to North Carolina, staying at his house on a little uh, rural highway just down the hill from one of his truck stops and began to get to know Dean Price through the, the tool of immersion journalism. Well, what he is is uh, one element of America, which is the entrepreneur and also the green element taken care of in this one place. And then if you're looking at politics, you know, we have the story of Jeff Connaughton, who spent some time as a Biden aide, also as a lobbyist. How did you run across him and when did he join the pack? I uh, interviewed him for a story I was doing on insider trading, a trial in, in Wall Street. And he was a good source because his last government job was working for Ted Kaufman of Delaware, who replaced Biden in the Senate in 2009. And Kaufman and his chief of staff, Jeff Connaughton, made it their mission over a very short two-year period to both punish Wall Street with draconian reforms for the financial crisis and to expose individuals on Wall Street to prosecution for the, the wrongdoings that led to the financial crisis. And needless to say, in neither of those missions were they successful. But along the way, I got to know Connaughton and his story fit perfectly with the terms of my book. His career spanned the 35 years of the book. 
from the late 70s. So all the characters are of a certain generational cohort, born in the late 50s or the 60s. He went to Washington as a young idealist who wanted both to change the world for the better and to attach his ambitions to Joe Biden. He thought Joe Biden was going to get him to the White House in the 80s. That did not happen either. He then became a lobbyist because government service didn't really work for him. Biden turned out not to be a very uh, nurturing boss. Lobbying was hugely successful for Connaughton. He made a fortune. He then lost a lot of it in the financial crisis and he went back into government uh, in a sense to, uh, to punish the banks. That story captured Washington during that period, the, the swamping of government by money that has been the story, I think the main story of Washington over the last generation. Connaughton's life embodied that story and his point of view, which is scathing and candid, gave me a critical eye on it. So after a long period of kind of going back and forth and dancing around it, he finally agreed to let me write his story because he also wanted to write a story and he published a, an autobiography called The Payoff. So Connaughton joined the cast because he fit perfectly and I needed a, a representative of Washington to to fill out the picture. Well, actually a representative of Washington and Wall Street and the lobbyist world, all three worlds at once, and somebody who you could probably use as a source for other material as well. Yeah. He, he actually worked on Wall Street in the 80s after first hearing Biden speak at the University of Alabama and being taken with him, but before joining Biden's 88 campaign. So he spanned many different worlds. And now in his 50s, He's essentially burned his bridges by telling the truth and he was someone who could tell me where the bodies were buried and he was willing to, which is really almost unheard of in Washington because no one wants to disqualify themselves permanently from admission into the establishment. Well, it also makes The Unwinding uh, a very, very different book because we get to see from the inside from an individual. I mean, there are books about it. Michael Lewis has written, but we get to see it from the point of view of someone who's doing it at the time and has a lot of regrets. And who's, as I say in the, in the book, he's more of a Rosencrantz than a Hamlet. Washington is full of these guys, number two guys, who are essential to the success of the number ones, but we never hear about them. But they're a, a really big part of, of the Washington story. George Packer, now, of course, you know, you've got two, you're looking for, I guess, five or six. And I guess the next one to come on the list, was it uh, Tammy Thomas, who was a, an African-American activist? It, well, she was actually the last one, okay. but we should talk about her because she's, I, I think she's, along with Dean Price, the most important figure in the book. This was toward the end of the, the reporting, which was really sometime early last year. I realized I wanted to have a woman character. I, I needed to have one. I wanted to have someone from the Rust Belt. Because if you look at the undoing of the, the deal that held Americans together in the post-war period, deindustrialization is an essential part of that. Tammy Thomas uh, is a black woman from Youngstown, Ohio, which was a steel town. It had nothing but steel. That was what supported the place. And she uh, was the daughter of a heroin addict and she essentially took care of her mother as she was growing up rather than vice versa. She then had three kids very young, no one to support them but herself and she managed to do it by getting one of the last good factory jobs after the steel mills collapsed in very rapid succession in the late 70s, early 80s. She went to work at an, a GM auto parts factory and for 20 years kept her family alive and safe as Youngstown collapsed around her and her old neighborhoods and her friends and her classmates, um, many of them fell by the wayside. She survived because she had this job and then the job disappeared right before she was going to get her pension because the company did what many companies do now and declared a kind of tactical bankruptcy to get out of its contracts with its American workers and to ship the jobs to Mexico. Suddenly, the last good jobs were gone from Youngstown and Tammy had no work. She remade herself in midlife as a community organizer and that's what she does today. How did you find her? I started asking people in the Midwest 
or people who were experts on the Midwest, do you know a woman in the Rust Belt who's doing some interesting work in trying to revive an old industrial city? I mean, a kind of crazy question to ask, but I started getting names and looked into them. And she interested me most because she wasn't just an activist. She was a factory worker who became an activist. And then as I, when I went to Youngstown to meet her and to begin this long process of winning enough trust to hang out with her for a long time, I found out she was even much more than that. Her whole life story is, is dramatic and tragic and inspiring. It's a story of an incredibly resilient woman who kept uh, doing, as she would put it, what she was supposed to do which seems like a very simple, humble thing, but it's actually a heroic thing uh, in, so, in, in some circumstances. George Packer, you said this was the last. So there are two other stories to tell. Uh, one is a, another person, uh, Peter Thiel, who's um, a libertarian Silicon Valley entrepreneur. How did you come to him and the decision to use Silicon Valley, someone in Silicon Valley, as emblematic? In a way, the book is a study of winning and losing. And I think one characteristic of this period I call the unwinding is that winners now win bigger than ever and losers fall farther than ever. And there's less to support the fall than perhaps since the 1920s. I needed to see the most successful examples of American life from this period. And you have to say that the two sectors that have done well while the rest of the economy was stagnating are Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is where I grew up. It was not called Silicon Valley back then. It became it after I left. And one of the features of the unwinding of this period is the information age. It coincided with the unwinding, with the collapse of, of manufacturing and of, of other institutions. Peter Thiel interested me because, first of all, his politics are very different from mine. So I wanted to kind of bounce my ideas off a conservative. He's brilliant. He founded PayPal. He made his big money through Facebook. He was the first outside investor. So he's this brilliant tech investor who had become a critic of tech. I, I read things he was writing that said maybe the internet has been overhyped. And so I wanted to hear what he had to say about that. And I wrote a profile of him for The New Yorker, which was done entirely in order to be able to write about him for my book. And how did you get connected to him? I just wrote an email to him. He's a very open guy. He's the kind of guy who answers all questions and who doesn't have the PR apparatus. He's a very likable person, and for a billionaire who's always traveling around, he's, you know, he's very accessible. So I profiled him for The New Yorker and then later came back to him and asked him if I could write about him uh, in my book, and he was willing to let me do some more interviews. So his story is this, partly the story of the, the incredible success of Silicon Valley, but it's also the story of how the technology revolution did not raise living standards around the country as earlier revolutions like the assembly line did. And Peter Thiel is an unusual person in the valley and he's able to see that and to articulate how dazzling change in the way we live does not necessarily mean progress. And that's an important theme in, in the unwinding. So his, his story gave me a very key element of both shining success and also kind of the hollowness that was just beneath it. Now we come to the final tale, which I guess you were still looking around for individuals and you didn't find one. Is that what happened? And you somehow knew that the other story had to be about housing? Is that what it was? The housing bubble and bust were symptomatic of so many things that had gone wrong. The fact that our economy needed these constant bubbles, whether it's stocks, bonds, uh, dot-coms, or housing, it suggested something isn't working here. There's no solid foundation to growth. We no longer have an engine for growth. So everyone chases these little chimeras and inflates them, and then they pop, and then we go looking for another one. Tampa, Florida was one of a handful of ground zeros of the housing bust. 
Uh, it became a place where people making in the mid five figures, modest, you know, to middle class incomes, really middle class incomes, would own five or six houses at a time, flipping them constantly as investment properties. Housing became a an investment commodity, a disposable commodity. And Tampa's growth, which was not in the city, but in the county around it, subdivisions springing up on wiregrass and swamp uh, where there was no infrastructure and the infrastructure had to follow. And some developers' idea of a community sprang up overnight and before it could even be finished, before the roads were all paved, before the, the houses were there to match, to meet the driveway that had been paved up to the house, it all stopped. The music just stopped almost at a certain instant and it all began to fall. So I went, started going to Tampa. I went there quite a few times and never found that one person who gives me a way into these other aspects of the unwinding. But I did find this situation of sort of a life of instant things and of getting in over your head, of having too much debt and too big a house and then having it all fall apart and then picking up the pieces because foreclosures were epidemic in Tampa. There really are maybe two main characters. There's a newspaper reporter from the St. Petersburg Times, Mike Van Sickler, who was on the housing beat and he was doing old-fashioned shoe leather investigative reporting into how these you know, run-down houses were sold for $300,000 and then flipped and sold for $600,000. And it turned out it was criminal. It was fraud. And we now know that there was a lot of fraud at the heart of the financial collapse. But he actually did the reporting and found the properties and found the local hucksters who were flipping them and then found the banks and, you know, and, and the assessors and the title companies that were part of it. So I wanted to write about him because media is an important piece of this whole picture. And he's a study in traditional newspaper reporting, which is a dying art. The St. Petersburg Times is one of the last really great regional papers in the country. And what he told me was it didn't seem to matter. He would spend months on this stuff and do a big front page story and nothing would happen. There were no prosecutions. There was no federal investigation. Well, it's Florida. It's all corrupt. It is pretty corrupt. It is pretty corrupt. You know, as one woman in a in a subdivision said to me, you know, that when she moved to Florida, her car insurance went way up. And when she asked the uh, insurance company why, they said, it's a fraud state, as if everyone knew that. There's a lot of suspicion in Florida because most people are newcomers. People pass through easily. The roots are not very deep in most of these places. Who knows who that neighbor who just moved in to the lookalike, you know, stucco house next door to you really is. I wrote a piece for The New Yorker called The Ponzi State because the whole prosperity of Florida seemed to be based on the next thousand people coming. And once those thousand people stopped coming, the entire scheme collapsed. Well, this isn't that much different from the 1920s Florida land boom as well. I mean, this is this is a state that does it over and over and gets away with it. Well, it's been a yeah, it's been a kind of um, speculative paradise for a long time, and it's there are many wonderful things, especially the landscape, which unfortunately is beginning to disappear underneath these subdivisions. The other main character in Tampa for me is a guy named Matt Widener, who's a foreclosure defense attorney. And he became my way into the foreclosure story. He is a kind of wildly outspoken guy with a lot of strong opinions. He has a blog. He gets up in court and is, is you know, quite emotive. And he and his clients presented this Dickensian spectacle to me of a court system that was so overloaded with these foreclosure cases that the whole thing had lost its wheels. The, you know, the cases no longer had the right paperwork. The signatures were wrong. There was robo-signing going on rampantly. The judges would hear a case every 30 seconds or every minute and pass, you know, pass it on and say, done, bank, you have the property, unless a lawyer like Matt Widener showed up. So it gave me another window into institutional breakdown, in this case, the breakdown of the, of the courts under the incredible burden of epic foreclosures. Speaking about epics, 
George Packer, what you're creating here is 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 an epic unto itself. Uh, what areas did you would you have liked to had more of focus? Uh, maybe the national media, something like that. I had to choose, obviously, because you can't throw your arms around America and grab it. It's too big, and it depended on finding the right people. I mean, if these individuals' stories were not compelling, if I didn't capture their voices, because this is what this book is, it's in the third person, but it really is told through the point of view and the voices of these characters and in their their diction, their rhythms of speech, the metaphors they use. If those weren't compelling, this would be a disaster. This would be like a, an epic failure of ambition, of overambition, which I hope it isn't. To tie it together, I needed both a chronology and you move back and forth among these five through time, beginning in the late 70s and coming up to the present. And also thematically, it really is about how institutions that used to support ordinary people's ambitions and dreams started failing and were replaced by a culture of elites who have replaced the institutions or now run them or fund them or have swept them aside you know, for their, their own purposes. So there are these profiles in the book of 10 leading Americans from the period to see the gap between our elites and ordinary people and to see how the people who the, – the elites who led these institutions presided over their breakdowns. It's a, quite a cross-section and some of the names are quite obvious why you would choose them. Um, you save your anger, I guess your greatest anger for – even more than Newt Gingrich for Robert Rubin and the late – Andrew Breitbart. And you know, I've heard that the Rubin profile is the most devastating. I wasn't quite aware of that as I wrote it, but what I've done in these profiles, as with the main characters, I've taken the words of these figures to tell their story. Most of them wrote autobiographies. Jay-Z wrote autobiographies and songs, so there's a huge vocabulary out there from him. They've all given multiple interviews. So I had a lot of access to their terms, the jargon they use, uh, the way they see themselves. And inevitably, their self-presentation has these massive blind spots because once you become a celebrity, you really are too big to know yourself, at least to know yourself publicly. And Robert Rubin's autobiography is a portrait of a, a modest man who kept finding himself unexpectedly in more and more powerful positions. And through a kind of disinterested, rational approach to evidence, came up with what he thought were the best policies in, on both Wall Street and in the Clinton administration. And I have some admiration for Robert Rubin. I think he's a decent man and had very good intentions. But he was part of institutions, especially Wall Street, that were going rotten. And he didn't see that. He imagined that Wall Street's interests and America's converged. And in 2008, when he was at Citigroup making $15 million a year and doing very little for it, suddenly Wall Street was not just uh, different from the national interest. It was directly counter to it. And so in a way, his story shows that even sort of the most admirable figures from these institutions, if they didn't see what was wrong, got swept up in the rottenness. And I think that happened to, to Robert Rubin, uh, especially in the last years he was at Citigroup. And at the same time, they do nothing to stop it. I mean, it became clear during the Bush years what was going down even before 2008, particularly if you were out of Washington and out of New York and you could see it from a distance. It's fairly evident. Rubin was a, an advocate of deregulation. His fingerprints aren't directly on some of the key legislation, but he was the main uh, insider in Washington pushing for it. In retrospect, you can see how undoing the restraints that were put in place in the New Deal and after on banking, creating this economy that was really driven by finance once manufacturing started to die, was a disaster in the making. And the incentives were all for short-term, massive greed rather than 
to see a longer-term need for for some kind of restraint on the power of the banks. And he, as much as any figure, created that state of affairs. Uh, there's a quote you, you, you gave in an interview. The whole time when Rubin has been a public figure is a period I think of as a shredding of the social contract. That's, that's pretty rough. Well, when you think about it, his Wall Street and Washington career go from the 70s to the late 2008 period. What has happened during that period? We've gone from being a middle-class society and economy with constant wage growth from the 30s to the 70s to a society as unequal as we've been since the Great Gatsby and maybe even since the robber baron period. That's the direction we keep moving and nothing seems to turn it back. The financial crisis did not turn it back. It accelerated this process. Robert Rubin isn't personally responsible for that, but he thrived and and initiated policies that I think are partly responsible for it. You mentioned Breitbart, uh, Andrew Breitbart, the late um, internet provocateur. He's in the book because to me, he represents exactly the kind of person who succeeds when institutions fail. In his case, the media failed. He uh, was a kind of bomb-throwing right-wing demagogue who used the internet early and very well, not just to push his right-wing agenda, but to spook the mainstream media. His entire career was about making reporters feel like they weren't doing their jobs did, or weren't did, doing them well. Did you know him at all? Not at, I met him in an elevator once, and he seemed like a, a very nice, charming Irishman. He's from L.A. You know, he's a creature of TV, Hollywood, and kind of the the 80s and and a a pretty nice, comfortable uh, American life, you always felt with him that it was sort of a game, that none of it was really all that serious. When he was asked about health care, he said, how do I know? I don't know anything about health care. I'm just here to make noise and to spook the media. And he did because during these years, the New York Times and CBS and other great institutions you know, would commit little errors like the Jason Blair fabrications or the Dan Rather documents on 60 Minutes and produce such a backlash both on the right and among sort of the the new internet voices that they kind of lost faith in what they did and kept questioning themselves and stopped doing it in some cases. The TV news network stopped being news networks. The news magazines stopped being news magazines. The New York Times, I would say, re- remained true to its mission, but it's, there are very few great news organizations left in this country. So this sort of devastated landscape was wide open to you know, a charming rogue like Andrew Breitbart to walk in and use the internet to say, there's no more objectivity there's no more facts. There's just noise and narrative. And that's unfortunately what a lot of uh, young people who don't have faith in the mainstream media for some good reasons and some bad or who grew up on the internet, that seems to be a prevailing kind of um, postmodern attitude. And Breitbart to me you know, was a fun, colorful emblem of the collapse of, of that institution. When I received the galley for the unwinding, the Breitbart biography was not in there. Was it that you needed to rewrite it because he had passed on? Or? No, I just I, I ran out of gas at my deadline. I was um, desperately trying to get this book finished at the end of last year with two little kids in the house and producing words as fast as I could. And uh, there was just no time to do the Breitbart one. I did it in January and it's in the book now and I hope people will read the book and not the galleys because I think it's an important piece of this story and it, like the other celebrity profiles, it stands in contrast to the main stories. You could think of Breitbart as the counterpart to Mike Van Sickler, the reporter for the St. Petersburg Times, who is still earnestly doing the job of a newspaper reporter for which Breitbart has nothing but contempt. There is one name in there that I was trying to – shaking my head going, why is this man there? I mean it was fascinating because I've always heard about him and I've read some stuff. But Raymond Carver, why did you choose to include Raymond Carver? He is sort of – that's a good question. He is the odd man out. I suppose I began to think that I was 
missing something. There were a lot of self-invented empire builders in this cast of characters, from Oprah Winfrey to Sam Walton, people from very humble backgrounds who rose to the top and then kept getting bigger and bigger, dominating our lives. And I thought, is there no one among the famous in our culture who has done just good work in a quiet way? And I thought, well, that might be Raymond Carver because the short story is like the least commercial form of literature. And Carver wrote it in a way that seemed almost designed to ward off easy fans. And yet he was hugely popular. And I think it's his vision that fits with the, the book. It's this vision of kind of a, an atomized people who live in their front yards and in their kitchens and don't feel a connection to a society beyond them. There's no politics. There's no current events. There's no history. There's just this moment in the present. And it's a kind of a an austere and, and downward present with ordinary things taking on this menacing quality, um, like a yard sale or uh, two couples having drinks. And it fit with my sense that the foundations of ordinary life have kind of collapsed under people's feet and no one knows where to stand anymore. That's the picture you get in Carver's short story. So that's why I included him. George Packer, it's not merely these stories because you take off into different smaller stories as well. There's the story of the heart cells of Tamper who are currently homeless. There's also the story of a man named Kevin, not his real name, from Wall Street. I guess these two specifically counterbalance one another. Yeah. The Hartzels are a family I met in Tampa, a family of four, who in another time would be living a rather constrained but stable working class life. He was a welder who ended up working in a packaging plant and made enough money to support his family, two kids. Um, but they have no education. Uh, they have no support. They have no family or friends in their lives. They have each other. It's a very tight family of four who have held together through rough times that would have broken up many other families. But because he lives in the age of Walmart rather than the age of blue-collar jobs, Danny Hartzell can't really support his family. $8 an hour, eight fifty an hour, 20 hours a week, it just doesn't work, and he became demoralized. I got to know them and followed them over the course of a couple of years, watched them struggle, make mistakes, go under, resurface. A really poignant, really even heartbreaking thing to see this family just struggling to survive. They're the poorest people in the book. And as you say, right now they're homeless, uh, which is pretty distressing. And their world is made up of video games and MTV and each other. Their kids aren't getting a good education because the Florida, the Tampa school system doesn't reach people like them. They have this very impermanent life. They have no union to support them. They have no church. They have no neighborhood association. They're living this incredibly isolated life, which I think is true of more and more Americans, all within a stone's throw of MacDill Air Force Base in South Tampa, which is where Central Command is. So you have this the place where the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were being directed, where David Petraeus and other world-famous generals were based, right outside the gates, there's this family no one's heard of. And so their story is the end of the Tampa story. It's the culmination of the Tampa part of the book. At the same time, something's going on in lower Manhattan, which is Occupy Wall Street. And that's why there's an investment banker named, pseudonym Kevin Moore, as a kind of a sort of sympathetic but also critical Wall Street guy watching Occupy take off. And there's a long chapter that follows Occupy from its flaring up through a couple of people who were part of it, a young activist named Nalini Stamp and a homeless man from Seattle, middle-aged named Ray Cashel, who became an occupier camping out in Zuccotti Park to the raid that ended it. And really, we have to say, ended Occupy Wall Street as, as a phenomenon. To me, the entire book leads you 
to the moment when Occupy, like a, a spark, suddenly ignites. And I think you can understand where Occupy came from by following all the stories of the characters which culminate in the financial crisis and the depression that follows. Occupy is the natural response, but it doesn't have the tools to channel it into a real movement. Which brings us to the next area, which is going beyond the book. Does writing something like this radicalize you? How does it make you, George Packer, feel? I became quite radicalized, not just by writing the book, by doing the reporting that led to the book. I mean, I'm I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal in a very establishment magazine, The New Yorker. I've had a very comfortable life from Stanford University to Yale to uh, some rough years in my 20s and early 30s, but to, you know, I'm, I, I can make a living as a writer, which is something that's very hard to say these days in America. And yet, you know, the past few years, I think, have been undeniable proof that we are becoming a plutocracy, a word I would have maybe rolled my eyes at 10 or 20 years ago. And we're becoming a plutocracy with a class that is becoming a hereditary class of leaders, where you're born, who your parents are, and therefore where you go to school and where you go to college is going to determine the course of your life. And the idea of upward mobility is less and less viable for most people. We have these exceptions. Jay-Z, who's profiled in the book, is like the, the most dramatic rags to riches story in America. Well, there's Oprah too. And Oprah is another. Those stories, I think, mislead us into imagining that the widening of opportunity is real. I think they are instead more like a casino where a few people get the ticket or get, win the jackpot and most people are left behind. So it, it was an infuriating thing to write this book. It was also a moving thing because especially Dean Price and Tammy Thomas got under my skin. I mean I, I came to love these people and to – feel their attachment, not just to their community, but to an idea of the country through them. Like I, I really felt both anger toward America and a love of it because I was writing about people who had not given up on the American dream. They're still invested in it. Whether it's invested in them is, is another question. In an interview, you say the extremes in America are so great, but there's nothing holding it together at the center. We used to have, and I, I don't want to romanticize the 50s, 60s, early 70s. There were many groups of Americans left out of the deal. But the circle had the capacity to widen itself. There were institutions capable of reform, and they did reform so that by the 70s, more and more people were included in, in opportunity in America. What we've done is exchanged that social contract for, for freedom. We have more and more freedom and more and more choice. And the internet is just one example of that. But what holds it together? For example, in news, what are the facts that Americans can kind of agree on and then begin to argue about the right solutions or the right policies? There are none. Everyone has their own facts and they have their own web websites to support those facts. And Instead of having Walter Cronkite telling you what was happening in Vietnam and actually commanding belief across the broad middle of the country, we now have a polarized landscape in which the truth is constantly contested. Now, that might seem like a good thing because we should question the news and whether things that we hear are actually true. But I worry that we're entering this weird age where, you know, there's only what you read on Twitter and who cares if it's true. It's someone's voice. We only have you – know, we now have a, a million voices. And to me, that's uh, – it may be liberating for some people who did not have a, a mouthpiece before. But I don't think it's a healthy thing for democracy which requires some common ground in order to function. Well, it also means the end of expertise, doesn't it? I mean if, if all voices are equal. It does. It does. And you can blame the media and other institutions for their failures, but it's doesn't, it shouldn't give you pleasure to see them fail. I mean, in a way, that was Sarah Palin's point. She loved seeing the mainstream media make a fool of itself because she didn't believe in expertise. She believed 
in the wisdom of ignorance. I don't think that's a good place from which our leaders should come, and I don't think it's a good place from which our, our citizens should come. Had you considered her as one of the people? I didn't. She's too cartoonish. Um, I, would, I wouldn't have known how to get inside her head, to me at least. There's no person in there. She is, <laughs> she's entirely <laughs> the Sarah Palin who we've known for the last few years. And I also didn't want to keep portraying conservative politicians as representatives of our political system. Newt Gingrich does the job. He's the first profile in the book. He, more than anyone, I think, created the poisonous atmosphere of the politics of this time. And his story kind of did the work, and I didn't need another one. How should we look at these people at the top who were doing all the damage? I mean, you know, there's a tendency to view them as, you know, quote, evil, if not in a religious sense. At the same time, I remember Molly Ivins once saying, you know, the problem with George Bush is that he simply doesn't understand his policies kill people. I think there's different levels of badness and responsibility. And I don't want to suggest that the book is a cartoon of evil elites and good Americans because the characters we've been talking about, Dean Price, Tammy Thomas, Jeff Connaughton, they put their money in bad investments. They get pregnant too young. They screw up. They screw up. They bust up their partnerships. They go bankrupt. They make big mistakes. The Hartzels make mistakes. So it, it is not a portrait of victims. People are responsible for their fates, I think, in a fundamental way. But the circumstances are so overwhelmingly against them and direct people's talents and energies in such unproductive ways that it's very hard to behave well as a citizen today. And it, there are very few people who are able to. The people at the top, you know, you start reading about Newt Gingrich's childhood, as I did. He had a horrible childhood. His birth father, if you can use that phrase, punched out his birth mother three days after their wedding, and that was the end of that marriage, long enough for her to get pregnant. She had Newt. His stepfather adopted him so his father could get out of paying child support, essentially sold him. Uh, and his stepfather didn't have any respect for me. So here's Newt Gingrich growing up in this really tough world. And he became a really unpleasant person. And it's not a surprise. Sam Walton, you know, was like a small town guy who just wanted to, you know, be a good businessman. He then became a sort of, you know, a fanatical empire builder. He couldn't stop. Walmart had to take over the world. But there was no, I don't think, e evil at the source of it. There was just a self-made American businessman, which is a, a good thing. So... They don't necessarily start bad, but something about the pressure of our capitalist life pushes people toward more and more growth at the expense often of, of the well-being of, of other people. George Packer, since writing The Unwinding, you've been lately focusing in The New Yorker, particularly in an issue in May, though there have been, been follow-ups to it, on Silicon Valley. And you make the distinction that people in Silicon Valley somehow seem to think that tech will save the world. And you look at it and go, you know, no, it's just another lobby, just another interest group. I'm as much a slave to my iPhone as anybody. And I value Google. It's become, for me, an indispensable tool of research. Facebook and Twitter, I've tried to keep a distance on. I think in general, the tech world has been so successful that it's created a very privileged bubble around itself. There's a kind of youthful idealism around it. It's always had this sort of self-regard as a revolutionary sector of our economy from Steve Jobs and the counterculture going forward. And I think that's led to a lot of self-deception in Silicon Valley because what is Silicon Valley? It's a set of very powerful uh, corporations and very wealthy people. And one great recent example is it turns out Apple uh, went to very creative lengths to avoid paying corporate taxes by setting up shell subsidiaries overseas, which is a time-honored corporate practice. But it shows that it's really no different from other companies. And t it takes advantage of laws written 
partly by lobbyists who are working for companies like Apple. So to me, it's a good thing if Silicon Valley becomes self-aware as being part of a larger society that has its own interests that sometimes are going to collide with other interests and that needs to enter the fray as an equal among many players rather than seeing itself as having a kind of magical solution to our problems through tech, which is an idea that's kind of taken hold in some parts of the valley. Well, your quote is, you hear about marvelous new upgrades to the iPhone and then how the Detroit Fire Department doesn't have enough money to buy toilet paper. So we live in this very strange time where some things are working incredibly well for some people. And life is changing faster, more dazzlingly than at any time maybe, you know, since the beginning of mass media. And at the same time, whole cities, whole states, whole regions are just sinking into decrepitude. How is it possible that these two things are happening at once? Well, one thing it shows you is technology is unable to elevate living standards across the board. Which was the myth that years ago that it would. I think that's right. And in the past, technological breakthroughs have. The assembly line, uh, automobiles, created or helped to create a middle class that was pretty prosperous and pretty secure, aided by the laws and regulations that came out of the Roosevelt years. We undid those laws and regulations, and now we have a wide open uh, kind of cowboy world in which technology flattens out all these structures and claims to have produced a new system called peer networks, which will be the answer to our problems. It will be a model for how we can solve our problems. But I look at crowdsourcing and and companies like Kickstarter and the sharing economy of Airbnb and Uber, which are hailed as disruptions of the old ways. They are disruptive, but have they created the possibility for broad prosperity in a new order? I don't think so. I think they, the virtual world is in some ways just radically decoupled from the real world in which we live, and it does not have the answers for the real world. George Packer, at one point, uh, I'm not sure if this is in an article or in an interview, you say half the game is freedom and the other half is equality. I think the two pillars of our democracy from the beginning have been the freedom of the individual to pursue his or her destiny and to make of his or her life what what we can. And the other is equality of opportunity and equality before the law, which has been a long battle and it's not over. But the story is generally one of widening inclusion. And right now we live in a time of greater freedom for more people than ever before. You can be a gay boy scout now, but you can't go to a good public school. So what have we gained and what have we lost? We've gained freedom, and I'd say we've lost a kind of equal opportunity that binds people together, that makes them feel like we're part of the same thing. And instead, more and more, I think young people especially, think the system is rigged, that to win in America today, you kind of have to cheat, break rules, break laws, cut corners. To, to just follow the beaten path, putting one foot in front of the other is a sucker's game. But, I mean, that comes from seeing that the system is rigged, doesn't it? I think when, when you see people in positions of great responsibility trying to cut corners on their taxes, which is epidemic today, abusing the rules of the Senate in order to thwart uh, democracy, as has happened, um, when you see CEOs giving themselves gigantic raises while cutting their workforce by 20%, something that really didn't happen uh, 40 or 50 years ago. It took the breaking of taboos to release this behavior. Yeah, I think Jay-Z's story is a real story for our time. It's the story of a kid from nowhere, the projects of Brooklyn, with every odd against him, fighting his way to the top by selling crack, and using the profits from that to launch a very successful musical career and using that to create a whole corporate empire in which it's, winning is its own justification. How you get there doesn't matter. 
And in fact, you're almost admired more if you're willing to break the rules to get there. That's the slogan of Facebook, move fast and break things. And then we've got Obama who says, hey, I'm a great reformer. And then he comes in and puts in Timothy Geithner. I mean, if you didn't think the system was rigged before Obama, who was the black president and a liberal or progressive, and then he caters to Wall Street, what are we to think? I think Obama thought he needed good mechanics to fix the economy. And he looked around and the, the only people with tools that he recognized as tools were essentially the circle around Robert Rubin, uh, Democrats who were pretty close to Wall Street. And they filled his Treasury Department and his White House. Um, I don't think he, he did that because Obama was a tool of Wall Street. I think Obama actually wanted to balance reforming Wall Street with stabilizing the economy. I think he made some very wrong choices, both in his personnel and in his policies. But to me, Obama is a very good man and a potentially great president at the wrong time. He has good impulses. He's thoughtful. He has a Lincoln-like restraint about him that's really admirable. But the levers of power don't work. He pulls a lever and nothing happens. And he doesn't know how to make it work. Maybe no one does. He has both houses of Congress. It's, it's a death struggle to get any of his legislation passed. Some of it did pass, but in rather shredded form after a really ugly process. So it's not Obama. It's the institutions that don't work. And he may be a, a potentially great president who will not be great because uh, we don't live in that time. And then there's one other biography I want to mention because this is someone who somehow has gotten into a position of power and can do some good, and that's Elizabeth Warren. I suppose she's the most favorable of the portraits. What I like about her is that she reminds me of politicians from an earlier time who are almost forgotten now. People like Robert La Follette of Wisconsin, George Norris of Nebraska, um, William Jennings Bryan, who had his, uh, his weaknesses, but who essentially they all had a vision that democracy was about ordinary people and that Washington was there to level the playing field between centers of power like Wall Street and Silicon Valley and ordinary Americans. And she talks that talk. She's plain spoken. She's unafraid. She makes people very nervous in Washington because she says things you're not supposed to say. She's not all that polite. She really pissed off Geithner. I think she kind of flummoxed Obama. Um, she infuriated the banks. And she kind of had their number. She knew the game they were playing and wasn't going to wink at them and say, we're all essentially in the same class of people. So let us just get this law passed. Instead, there's a kind of hostility there that I find refreshing. Now, will she survive being a member of the United States Senate? That's a tough question for Elizabeth Warren. Every tendency of that body is to wear you down, to make you part of the club, to make you impotent. And it'll be a, one of the interesting political dramas to see if Elizabeth Warren can pull the Senate out of the muck or if the Senate is going to pull Elizabeth Warren into it. Is there any way that we as citizens can do anything other than be on our own, uh, be our own Tammy Thomas, let's say? Well, the hopefulness in the book, um, and I do think that the stories leave you with this encouragement that there are these individuals who, far from having given up, are still ardently pursuing a vision. It's very local. It's not happening in Washington. It's not happening in the media capitals. It's happening out of view in, in forgotten places. I'm sure it's happening all over, and you just need to go out and find these stories. Whether all these separate efforts by people whose names we don't know will lead to some kind of coherent reform movement like the progressive movement and the populist movement in a very similar time 100 years ago, that I don't know. I'm not a predictor of the future. The book does not prognosticate, nor does it prescribe. What I wanted to do was to portray 
to give us a picture of America today and to show how we've come to this point we're at now. This interview with George Packer was conducted in the KPFA studios on June 4th, 2013, while he was on tour for his book, The Unwinding. Since that time, his biography, Our Man, Richard Holbrook, and the End of the American Century, was published in 2019 and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. His latest book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, was published in June 2021. An article delineating highlights from that book can be found in the July-August 2021 edition of The Atlantic. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.